Would you open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 16, tonight? We are plodding along in these verses. And we are joined by a radio audience around the country. And they, I, they, by the way, they do say on Saturday nights they love it when they get to hear us greet them the way we do. So would you do that once again? Well, that's giving them their money's worth, isn't it? There was a small rural town, and in this town there was one church small Baptist church. It was so small of a town and so small of a church that the pastor had to also work as the local barber just to make the ends meet. Also in this town, there was a very wealthy gentleman. He got up one morning and he went through his daily routine, looked at himself in the mirror, was about to shave, and he thought, now wait a minute, I make enough money I don't need to shave myself. I could go down to the barber shop every day and they could shave. So, got his belongings, went to the local barber shop, but the barber slash pastor was not there that morning. He was out visiting some of the shut-ins in the community. His wife was there, however. Her name was Grace. And she said, I'm usually the, ones, uh, the one who does the shave. So if you sit down, I'll be happy to shave you. So the man sits down and Grace tenderly but very thoroughly shaved the gentleman's face. After it was all done, he said, how much do I owe you? She said, $25. He thought, man, 25 bucks for a shave, that's pretty steep. But he paid her, walked out, still uneasy with the price, thinking, I don't think I'm going to do this every day, maybe every other day or every third day. The next day he woke up felt his face, and it was as smooth as it was the day before. Perfectly smooth like a baby's face. He thought, that was a $25 shave. That was worth it. Went through the day, didn't think much of it. Woke up the next day, and his face was just as smooth. Woke up the third day, and wouldn't you know it, his face had grown no stubble. It was perfectly clean, smooth, like the the moment after Grace had had shaved his face. He thought, now something's up here. And he went back to the barber shop, and the pastor was in that day. And he said, excuse me, I was here a few days ago, and I was shaved, and my face is still as smooth as the day it was shaved. And he said, oh, that's because you've been shaved by Grace, friend. And, and once shaved, always shaved. Well, you have been, according to Ephesians, saved by God's grace. So that you are just as clean today, spiritually, from your sins as the day you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. However, looking at some people, you wouldn't know that. By some people's demeanor, they just don't seem saved. It's like the spirit of the grumps hit them. Sour disposition, as if baptized in lemon juice 
They're saved but sad. They're on their way to heaven, but you'd think they're going to stop off at hell for a few weeks first. The Scottish commentator William Barclay said, A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms, and nothing in all of religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black robes and long faces. Now, I am careful to recognize that some people do suffer from depression, sometimes clinical depression, sometimes long-term clinical depression. I'm sensitive to that. However, that is the exception, not the rule. That is something that is usually temporary, not permanent. I also notice something else, and that's where I take you to our text now, beginning in verse 16, is that Jesus promises both sadness and joy. In fact, he mentions them in the same breath. One comes out of the other. He is not denying that there would be sad times. In fact, he predicts that there would be, but he speaks about joy in the midst of it. In verse 16, he says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Notice that sorrow and joy are spoken of in the same breath, one in the midst of the other. It's true, Jesus knew it, that the disciples were in for some rough seas ahead. Times would be dark, doubtful, times of persecution, suffering physically, even martyrdom. He knew that. He knew that they would face times like the hymn writer Horatio Spafford wrote about in his famous hymn. And he said, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Jesus anticipates all of that, but he speaks about a quality of life as joy that is complete. Here's the bottom line. Sadness is not next to godliness. It is joy, deep-seated joy, that reveals the presence of Christ in the life of a disciple. If you have no joy, you have missed the heart of the gospel. 
Last I checked, gospel meant good news. It's time we act like it. We begin in the 16th verse. We already read the section through. But where we begin is Jesus says something that causes the disciples to go, Huh? What does he mean by that? They're puzzled by something. Now remember, this entire message, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, were spoken to the disciples. The 17th chapter is Jesus' prayer to the Father with the disciples around. But this is discipleship. That's the core of it. Everything you ever needed to know about discipleship is found in these chapters. He's talking about followers of His. However, since disciple means a learner or a follower of Christ, it's very difficult to follow somebody who says, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't come. Well, how do we be a disciple of that? So, they bring up this question. They are confused. What does Jesus mean by it? Um, His words in verse 16 seem clouded, ambiguous, full of shadows. Now, I'm going to emphasize that for a minute. What I want you to notice, and i got to tell you, as I read this this week, I was greatly encouraged to discover that even the disciples didn't always get it. Even the big wigs, those who were in immediate context of Jesus' body language, uh, vocal structure, they were there. They often went, huh? They didn't get it. I was encouraged by that because there's a lot of times I read the Bible and I don't get it. I believe that the art world has done Christianity somewhat a disservice in the way it has portrayed the holy men of old, especially the disciples. I've seen numerous paintings in uh, museums, especially in Europe and cathedrals, of disciples that are markedly different from the guys I read about. They are pictured as having the brightest halo in the room, a little taller than most, older usually, and having the wisest look on their faces, like this. (laughs) When in reality, half the time it was like, they didn't get it. What does he mean by in a little while? I'm encouraged by that. It's, it's, it's funny because uh, I do a fair amount of reading and commentaries and theologians, and some theologians on, on, on all sections of Scripture, but even this one, are very dogmatic as to what it means. But even the disciples weren't dogmatic. It's funny how that now they can be so dogmatic when the disciples are going, huh? What on earth does he mean? This was not the first time they didn't get it, by the way. If you'll remember back to chapter 14, Jesus said, Where I'm going, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said, We don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? (laughs) Or the time Jesus spoke in parables. Beautiful analogies of the spiritual life. And when Jesus was all done, the disciples got together with Jesus And they said to him, Would you explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field? It was Benjamin the Israeli that said, To be conscious you are ignorant is the first great step to knowledge. It is true that spiritual truth needs spiritual help to produce spiritual understanding. We are born blind. 
God has to open up the eyes of our understanding. And even as believers, we need God to open continually our eyes to get it. How many times have you read a scripture through and on the fifth or tenth reading, you go, oh. It's very akin to the disciples after Jesus appeared to them. And it says, he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So, the disciples were ignorant about something Jesus said. Now notice how they handled it. It says in verse 17, And so they said among themselves. What did they do? Did they keep it to themselves? They say, I have no clue what he's saying, but I'm not going to tell anybody. They had the freedom to admit their ignorance among each other. There's a level of fellowship there that is very attractive to me. What do we do when we don't get spiritual truth? Here's what you do. Discuss it. Ask questions. A wise man was once asked how he learned so much about everything. And he replied, by never being ashamed or afraid to ask questions about anything for which I was ignorant. But, on the other hand, some folks are too proud to ask questions about spiritual things. And so they never get answers to spiritual things. Some are too busy to discuss spiritual matters, so they remain in ignorance and immaturity. Not these disciples. I found a Chinese proverb that says, He who asks a question is a fool for five minutes. He who does not ask a question remains a fool forever. What does he mean? I don't know. I thought you knew. I don't know. They discussed it. Now, Jesus makes a promise. He weaves the promise all the way through the paragraph. He begins in verse 16. It's a promise of his leaving and returning, their sadness, but then their joy. But the whole issue for the disciples centers around one phrase, in a little while. It is used no less than eight times in our paragraph. What does he mean by that? How long of a time exactly is a little while? They've been around Jesus enough. He spoke in parables they didn't understand. What does he mean now when he says, in a little while? Well, let me tell you tonight that we're no less ignorant than the disciples. Because as I read it, I came up with three possible meanings, three possible interpretations. I want to cover them with you. First of all, Jesus could be referring to something that would be fulfilled immediately. You're not going to see me, then you're going to see me. You'll be sad when you don't. You'll be happy when you do. It could simply refer to his death and then his resurrection. It could be that the first little while refers to the time between the cross and the resurrection. That's three days. That's the time when they were despondent and sad. And the second little while refers to the time between the resurrection and the ascension, which was a period of 40 days that his disciples were full of joy and ecstasy when he was resurrected. It's true that when Jesus died, the hopes of the disciples also died. They were devastated. When Jesus met two disciples on the road to Emmaus who didn't know he had risen, Jesus asked them, why are you guys so sad? In fact, it says in Luke 24, they stood still, their faces were downcast, and they said, we had hoped 
that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The other disciples were hiding in a room. That's how devastated they were. But when Jesus appeared alive, they were, the word I would use is stoked. Joyful to the max. Their sorrow was turned into joy when Jesus appeared in the upper room. As he spoke, he held out his hands for them to see and he showed them his side and they were all filled with joy when they saw their Lord. So when Jesus promises this, it could simply mean that immediately this is going to be fulfilled. There's another possible interpretation. Jesus could be referring to this being fulfilled not immediately, but imminently, soon after the immediate. He would be leaving, that is, ascending into heaven, but soon would come the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would descend upon the church. And that's how some commentators, in fact quite a few, look at this interpretation. Jesus could mean this, disciples, you're not going to see me with your physical eyes, but you will apprehend me with your spiritual eyes as the Holy Spirit will come upon you in days to come. There's a hint perhaps of that a couple of chapters back when Jesus in John 14 says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you another, another comforter, another helper. And if you remember, we mentioned there were two possible Greek words Jesus could have used. He could have used the word heteros for another or alas for another. But they mean two different things. Heteros means another of a different kind. Alas means another of exactly the same kind. That's the word Jesus used. I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a comforter just like me. And so it could refer to when the Holy Spirit descended upon them, there was first a little while when Jesus ascended until Pentecost, which was 10 days, but then the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came upon the church, another helper, bringing them joy. We read that in the book of Acts. Every time the Holy Spirit came upon the church and the word was spread, that happened. Listen to this in Acts chapter 13. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So now we have two possible interpretations. We're still a little bit better off, but not completely, than the disciples who went, huh? There's a third interpretation. It could be that Jesus was seeing this as being fulfilled eventually. Not immediately, not eminently, eventually, futuristically. It could be that he's speaking of the end of the age. Because notice something. Notice in verse 16, he links seeing the disciples again with being in the Father's presence. He says, and you will see me, notice this, because I go to the Father. He could simply mean that when the disciples are in the presence of God in heaven at the end of the church age, or in their case, when they die, they'll be immediately in God's presence. That's when they'll have fullness of joy. He could mean that. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, if this is the case, then the words a little while mean a lifespan or the entire church age. All three interpretations are correct. They all have biblical precedents. I, however, lean to that final one, the third one. 
I see it as heaven for two reasons. Reason number one, because look at verse 22. Jesus says the joy will be permanent joy. He says it's a joy that no one will take from you. Once you have it, it won't erode. You'll have it for good. That can't really be said of the first two options. Oh, the disciples were excited when Jesus rose from the dead, and we know today Jesus is alive. But how many Christians who know that are still bummed out? And how many Christians who have the Holy Spirit are still living in despondency? The joy Jesus speaks of is permanent joy. It's an eternal joy. There's a second reason I lean to this. Because you see the term, little while? It is a relative term. This is what I mean. I looked it up and discovered Jesus uses this term several other times in his three and a half year ministry. He used it once before on this night in chapter 14. He said, A little while and the world will not see me. It's true. The next day he would be crucified. But the first time Jesus uses the phrase in a little while was a year ago in John chapter 7. It was about a year before he says it here In John 7, Jesus says, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. What I'm trying to show you is that one time Jesus uses it, it means a day. Another time Jesus uses it, it means a year. He used it in a relative sense. In an eternal sense, it was still a little while, a year. But here's the point. God keeps time differently than we do whether it's a day or a month or a decade or a millennium. One day is as a thousand years, Peter wrote, and a thousand years as one day unto the Lord. You know what it's like, parents, when your kids bemoan that they have to wait an entire week? They do that when they're about five. When they become 50, a week is like a breath. It passes so quickly. It is relative to the growth. God inhabits eternity. Jesus says, I'll see you in a little while. And if you look at our lifespan in terms of eternity, the Bible says, what is your life? It's a breath, a wisp. Somebody once calculated that if you condensed entire human history of man in a 50-year span, it would look like this. During the first 45 years, nothing significant would happen. That is, if your cosmology is an old earth cosmology. Two years ago, Christianity came into being. Five months ago, the printing press was invented. Twenty days ago, Ben Franklin discovered electricity. Nineteen days ago, the telephone was invented. Eighteen days ago, two high school dropouts invented the airplane. Ten days ago... A radio came into being. Five days ago, TV was invented. And five minutes ago, jet airplanes were first used. It's a whole different perspective. To God, an entire millennium is a little while. He's in the eternal present. You may have heard about the little boy who was praying and he said, God, I read in in your book, that Bible... That one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day to you. And somebody also told me, I think it was a preacher, God, that you're rich and that uh, you 
have a cattle on a thousand hills so that a billion dollars to you is just like a dollar. So God, could I please have a dime? And God answered back, sure, just a minute. It's all relative. And when you're in eternity in heaven... And days become months, become years. Pretty soon there is no time at all. A lifespan is a little while. Look at verse 20. He says something in his promise concerning their joy. And I want you to mark it because it's a contrast. Why we get joyful and why the world does. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's a promise. You're going to weep and lament. But the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. But, again, part of that promise, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Did you notice what the world rejoices at? The world rejoices at the removal of Jesus Christ from its midst. When I'm gone, the world will be so happy. They're going to rejoice. You're going to be sorrowful. Why? Because the world, apart from Christ, secures its joy by evading all thought of personal sin, all thought of judgment, all thought of death. Jesus reminds them of that. Get them out is their solution. Hence the crucifixion from their point of view. Uh, Go back to chapter 15. We've read it, but let's, let's get refreshed on this. Chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. That's the joy of the world. As long as Jesus isn't there reminding them of who they really are, they're happy. It's a temporary joy. It's the joy of the event, the gala, the party. It's the the event that drowns out the internal voices called the conviction of sin. You can see that throughout the Bible, but here's the most remarkable incident I have found of this. During the tribulation period, you know what that is, that's when God judges the earth, cataclysmic judgments like never before. What has happened so far in our history doesn't hold a candle to what's coming. This is what it says, that two witnesses will come on the scene, Revelation chapter 11. They will be God's representatives. I believe, Jewish evangelists. It says this, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth and they are killed. There is absolutely no joy in the tribulation period at all. The only rejoicing on planet earth comes and they give gifts to celebrate it, is when these two preachers are killed. It's like Satanic Christmas. Operation Tribulation Child. I mean, can you imagine? 
here's your present happy dead witnesses day. They're gone. It's the only recorded time during that period when people will celebrate on planet Earth. Now think about that. With all of the cataclysmic destructions that destroy this planet, the thing people are really mad about is two preachers. And when they're dead, it's party time. Jesus said, when I'm gone, the world will rejoice and you will lament. Jesus came and ruined their party. In contrast to that, look at verse 22. Our joy is relational. That is, it depends on the relationship we have with the person of Christ. I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. Our joy is permanent. Verse 22 again, your joy no one will take from you. And we read verse 24, our joy will be complete. He says, I say this and you will pray that your joy may be full. There is nothing lacking in the kind of joy that we have. The world's joy is that Jesus is gone. Our joy is that He's with us. He's here. R.A. Torrey said, There's more joy in Jesus in 24 hours than there is in the world in 365 days, and I have tried them both. So now let's turn to a final parable that Jesus gives in verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Now that's a parable, that's an analogy to illustrate the principle that we just read in verse 20. What's the principle? Your sorrow will be turned into joy. One will stem from the other. And the parable is that of a woman giving birth to a child. The point is simple. The point is having a baby really hurts a lot. It's very agonizing. It brings great pain, great sorrow momentarily. Now men don't understand this. Carol Burnett tried to frame it for a man. She said, let me tell you what it would be like if you stretched your lower lip completely over your head. You get an idea of the anguish of childbirth. I thought that was hilarious. What a way to put it. I remember when my son was born. Now men go through these things called Lamaze classes. And they get their little diploma. You've passed. And basically, you're licensed to be a cheerleader. It's about as close as we get. Push, push, push him out. Way out. We don't do anything. <laughs> breathe, breathe. Now, I don't know about you guys, but let me tell you my experience. It don't work. Uh-uh. We did the whole Lamaze thing, and I was there as a good coach. Come on, honey, push, push, breathe. And... At one point during her labor, she looked at me square in the eye and she just punched me. (laughs) Shut up, okay. I laughed out loud when I read Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message on this verse. This is how he, he renders it. When a woman gives birth, she has a hard time. There's no getting around it. 
Now, before we apply that, and we, we better apply that, I want you to note, as a side note, that of all the examples Jesus could have used of sorrow, he went into the world of a woman who gives birth to a child. I say that because so often the Bible is accused by unbelievers as being chauvinistic, as being patriarchal, that never considers woman. Of all of the examples Jesus could have used, he considers the pain of a woman. And I'll tell you what, every woman listening to that, if they would have listened that day, this is to the disciples, they would have gone, Amen. Notice he says, as soon. Notice that, that, that phrase. He says, a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because the hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child. It's amazing how quick a woman forgets her pain when she has a little baby in her arms. It's all gone. It doesn't matter. This is what I live for. I like to watch the surgery channel. My wife hates it. I love it. That's my background. I'm intrigued by it. And sometimes they show live childbirth. And they show a close-up of the woman's face as she is pushing. And it's just like this grimace, contorted. <laughs> and then afterwards, it's, ah. It's amazing transformation that takes place. And the application to that analogy is the next verse. Therefore, just like that woman whose uh, joy of a child is now taking the place of the pain of childbirth. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Does this refer to the resurrection? Does this refer to the coming of the Holy Spirit? Or does this refer to the second advent or our death when we're in the presence of the Lord? All three of them fit. It applies all of them. They were united when Jesus rose from the dead. They were further united when the Holy Spirit came upon them. But they'll be ultimately united in heaven when they see Him face to face. Now, after having read what we just read, let me read this verse that is familiar to you in light of the context here. Romans 8 says, All creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us, also groan. We too wait anxiously for that day when God will give us our full rights as His children, including the new bodies that He has promised us. The answers are always in the back of the book. That's what my teacher told me. And listen to the answers in the back of this book. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. God is going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. My first day of kindergarten was a day of tears. Only because I hated school. And I cried. I remember that day. It sounds foolish. It sounds silly. I remember my first day of kindergarten as if it happened a month ago. I remember the faces of my teachers. I remember the people that I met and was embarrassed to meet. I can still tell you their names. 
And I can recall certain other days of my life that have been filled with tears. The day my brother was killed on a motorcycle. The day I got the phone call from my mother that my father was dead. Episodes of tears. There will be no more tears. Whether tears of loneliness or tears of alienation or tears of sympathy or tears of poverty, gone. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. Same text says there will be no more death. Hard to imagine life without death. 52 million people die every year in the world. The greatest mortal curse is death. The last enemy, Paul said, is death. You'll never have to go to a cemetery again. You'll never have to go to another funeral. Everything is new, it says. The entropy law, as I read it, is repealed. Everything is in that state of not running down, but newness all the time. No more pain, it reads. How much aspirin is sold in America? It's in probably every medicine cabinet of people in this room. No more need, no more pain. If you are not a Christian, the way I figure it is the worst experience in life is growing old without Jesus. Because it only means your sorrow will be turned into more sorrow. The best you could ever hope for is to look back and try to grab some sentimental memory of previous days when it was bright and sunny and happy. But there will be eternal sorrow. Your sorrow will be turned into sorrow, but not for the child of God. The past is over. As bad as it could ever be, the best is yet to come. No hospitals, no Alzheimer's, no wheelchairs, no rehabilitation clinics, no blindness, no deafness, perfect health, no tears. I love what the little boy said who went and picked a dog in the store. The dog's tail was wagging. He said, I want the one with the happy ending, Daddy. (laughs) So do I, little boy. So do I. I want the one with the happy ending. I want the life with the happy ending. And no matter what I face now, and I do have joy because Jesus is alive, and I do have joy because the Holy Spirit is within me, I have episodes of ups and downs. I'm not always wee like this. But there will come a day when the experiences I have now will all be eclipsed by seeing Jesus face to face and my sorrow and yours will be turned into joy. Now, as we close tonight, I want you to ask yourself a very important question. It's a question that sometimes we ask on nights like this or on Sunday mornings. If you think about your life, do you really know, do you really sincerely know that you have a relationship with God? I mean, do you know that for sure? I'm not asking, do you think, do you know? Are you sure? Are you serious about spiritual matters? It's not a weekly visit to church. It's not, you know, I better go to church. I have children now. I've got to get them in Sunday school. God's a good thing to have in your life somewhere. No, is Jesus Christ the center of your life? Do you know that if you were to die tonight, that you would be in God's presence? You ought to be able to leave and say, I know that for sure, not, well, I hope so. Because you know what? It's going to be too late then to find out you were wrong. Now's a good time to make sure. 
And to look back over your life and think of all the good and all the bad, but to realize that one day you will see Jesus, either as judge or Savior. Either before His tribunal or Him welcoming you into His Father's kingdom. And you can make that choice tonight. You ask yourself those questions. If you are not sure, it's time to be sure. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so grateful to see a room packed full of human beings, some with Bibles in hands, all listening as your word is read and talked about and applied. It's encouraging. But we also know that it is more than attending an event. It is knowing a person. We have heard it before, Lord. We have often read it. You never said, come to church or come to my people. You said, come to me. You never said, follow the rule book or follow my people, but follow me. You made it so personal and so individual so that we can't rely upon what our parents or grandparents did for us in exposing us to church or what we once believed about you or the fact that we have an affiliation with some denomination. It's just, are we right with God personally? Have we come to God through Jesus Christ personally? And as we think about our lives and only we can answer that question in our own hearts, consider the words of Jesus Christ to a religious man when he said, You must be born again, Nicodemus. If you are not born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then, Lord, we recall that Jesus explained what that meant. As many as would believe in Him or rely on Him, cling to Him, they would be saved. So it's a simple act of faith. And Father, we pray for those in this room tonight or listening by radio nationally that if that hasn't been done personally, that tonight business would be done with God. We'd close the deal. We'd not think about it any longer or ponder it, but walk through that gate, that narrow gate, tonight, that narrow gate, tonight.